Hi, hey, hello. My name is Corinne Malcolm. I'm Keely Hendinger. And I'm Hillary Allen. And we want to welcome you to another edition of Trail Society, where we're going to kick around some trail and running related topics that we're personally very excited about. And we're hopeful, like we're very hopeful that they're pertinent to you all as well. We're stoked on this episode and we're really excited that it's launching during UTMB week and our very own Hilly Goat will be tackling the big race. Hilly, how excited are you? Oh, I'm nervous. Uh, also very excited. I mean, uh, it's almost like a homecoming because I lived in France for, you know, a year and a half. I know the course I've done soft UTMB, you know, basically UTMB in like three or four days. Corinne, we did it together. Um, so I know the course really well. I'm super excited. France is beautiful. All the croissants. <laughs> um, no, I'm just excited to, you know, run around in the dark for a bit and <laughs> see the beautiful sunrise somewhere. And what will I be in Switzerland at that point? Probably. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm really excited. I always jokingly call it Tour de Fromage, where I just go to Europe and eat a bunch, <laughs> bunch of cheese um, and have a really good time. And I know I'm I'm going to be over there, but Keely, you're going to be stateside. And I'm really curious to know kind of what you're looking forward to about UTMB week. There's so many exciting races going on. And I'm wondering if there's anything that you're like very, very excited about. Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing I'm excited about is possibly hosting a little like view party from my new house and having people doing some trail runs and then come and watch the the race and the commentary from my house. So that will be really fun. But I would say the thing I'm most excited for is what I was excited for about Western is the homecoming of all of these crushers coming into this race and like what that means for race times and how fast and just how solid this race is going to be. Cause there are some crazy names in this field. Um, and so I think for the women's race, I mean, like that's going to be stellar with you, Hillary and like Beth's coming back after Western, we have Courtney coming back, Ragnar DeBats, Camille, like the, the list is insane. Just like Western States was for men and women. The fields are so, 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 so stacked that I feel like the race is just going to be amazing. I think it's going to be absolutely insane. That's kind of a really great segue. Um, just mentioned the fact that there's going to be so many Western States women there. Um, we said in the first episode that we were not going to pile drive you right into science, that we are going to take a step back and then we're going to get super, super nerdy today. And what we're going to get nerdy about to start is we're going to talk about the infamous Western States endurance run of 2021, where our very own Keeley was part of it. And I think you had a really phenomenal day. And I think it was a phenomenal day for women's trail running in general. And I'm just wondering if you can kind of start us off by what happened that day from your vantage point. Oh man, that day was absolutely magical, but I'd say, I mean, it started off with obviously a nice hike up for the sunrise. Um, and I think just even doing that hike, you realize that the field was just absolutely stacked in both men's and women's races because people were just flying up that climb. Um, and I felt like I controlled myself really well and took that climb really, really easy. And that was very rare for me because I'm used to like running pretty hot out the gate and running much shorter distances. Um, and so I feel like I got to see the race kind of unfold and, and see how a lot of veterans run these kind of races and how like composed they are early. And I actually got to run with Ruth Croft, who ended up second, Brady Peterson, who ended up fourth and, um, oh goodness. 
I'm dropping some of their names, but a couple of the other women who, who have finished well as well. And they were just so composed the entire time as well as in hunt mode. And so like, it was really cool to be running with these baller women who were not only super fit and really hungry to like finish really well, but were also being really composed early on. And then, you know, combine that with just like the excitement that is at every single aid station when you're running in and everyone is wanting you to finish and doing their utmost part to help you get to that finish line and encourage you along the way. Like the race was just absolutely magical. And, and yeah, from like a female lens, a female, like athlete or competitor lens, it was, it was insane. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was a historic race we had for the first time ever. We, there were three women in the top 10, which had never happened before. They had had two women in the top 10, but they'd never had three women in the top 10. We had 15 women in the top 30, um, despite the race only being 20% women. So that was a pretty spectacular performance. Ragda also set the master's record in her and her finish there, which was Ann Trayson's master's record. So also insanely fast. Additionally, I believe that this was the fastest ever top 10, i.e. the 10th place female. That was the fastest they had ever finished, which is really, really cool. Like oftentimes, like under 20 hours, which is insane. Oftentimes, mm-hmm. you know, uh, some years 20th is good for top five or like a 20 hour finish is good for top five. So it was really, really, really fast. And I'm wondering, you know, this is not the first time that, you know, women have dominated races, but it was, it was in the the eye of the media and it was very, very public and tech is better and social media is better. So we're, I think we're just all really engaged in it because our sport has, has grown and adapted. And I'm wondering if there are any other races that women have had dominating performances in the overall ranking. Nothing. I've got some, that's fine. <laughs> so The idea here is that, you know, although maybe the depth of women have not done this before, individual women have done this before. People like Nikki Kimball and Ann Trayson and Pam Smith, like names that we should all know, Chrissy Mole, women who are, who have been the leaders in our sport in many, many ways, finishing well into the top five or top three at big races like UTMB and Western States. Courtney's phenomenal Moab 240, which I think kind of made her a crossover athlete, i.e. she was known outside of our weird little running sphere. Um, Ruth Croft, obviously this past year at Tarawera, that was, I think uh, it got a lot of, a lot of publicity there, despite it being a smaller race than usual due to COVID. Um, and then do you all, have you all heard of the Montane, um, spine race, um, that happens in the UK? Yes, I have. Yeah. Yeah. It's a 268 mile race. Um, and I think it's been one now outright twice by women. Um, Mm -hmm. one being, um, Yasmin Paris. Um, who's phenomenal. I believe she's a mom. I think she's like well-known for like having to stop to breastfeed during the races. So just like very, very crazy. But I'm wondering too, like what's the highest either of you have ever finished overall in a race? Is there, does anything stick out to you in that sense? Uh, Yeah. yeah. I mean, so, and you mentioned Courtney DeWalter. Obviously, I think that's like the current, the current age, right? Where, Where we're talking about that. And that's the Moab 240, but then also the Tahoe, um, the Tahoe 200 and, you know, her, her leading the race and, you know, trying to catch run down the, the, the man, uh, the, the leading man. Um, and so, yeah, I think that, and of course, all those names you mentioned, like an ultra running history, we need to, we need to know those, those women and they are leading the way. And I think it's, it's actually, 
And some would argue that, oh, well, those women were placed in the top 10 or winning ultras outright because it wasn't as competitive, but I disagree. I mean, um, uh, so I think for any of us as we're competing for wins, um, when we place well or we win, um, or even podium, you know, we're placing the top uh, percentage of the overall field. Uh, I know some of the best finishes I've had, I placed top, I placed third at, um, uh, Bighorn 50 is actually where I met my coach, Adam St. Pierre. <laughs> um, and I was a bit mad that I didn't actually get a double prize. I really wanted one. <laughs> Sorry, I'm greedy. Um, but then uh, I remember at Speedgoat one year when I won, and I believe I was, um, I have to double check the results. I think I was ninth, maybe as high as seventh, but I believe maybe as high as ninth for um, for winning that and setting the course record in Speedgoat in 20. I believe that was 2016 when I did that. Um, and so, you know, those are some examples for me. Um, and still like speed goat, that's a very notoriously competitive race in both the men's and the women's field. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I've had definitely similar experiences, but I think in my mind, I always likened it to like it being a smaller race. Cause I've gotten third at like the Mount Hood 50. I've gotten second at the black Canyon 60 K like I've definitely gotten top three a number of times at like what I've considered smaller races. Um, but I feel like those races are, are fun for women to, to like compete with the men in, because to me, it was like always a challenge to catch them. Um, and I've actually had some conversations with women after races in similar fashion where they might've gotten second or third or something. And, and those women typically are a little bit upset that they didn't win, um, or that they didn't, you know, get second or whatever. And they, they actually wanted to do even better. And it didn't matter that it was men and that they'd already won for first women. They wanted to win, uh, overall or, or get that next place. And so I think that's kind of interesting too. Yeah. So why I made us just do, or made you all do, cause I'm, I can sit this one out. Um, <laughs> why I made us do this like embarrassing exercise of, you know, your accolades was this idea that, you know, why it, it is, does gender matter here? And like, I think after Western States, there was a dialogue around, um, around this phenomenon or around the women doing so well with the idea of, well, you know, it, why, why does it matter how they did compared to the men? And so I want to bring up this idea or like talk about this, you know, this next topic of, of what, like, why is it important? Is it men v women or women v men or people v people? And I was talking to some friends the other night about, you know, the term chicked and how I think we have decided that, you know, that's, you know, there's a negative connotation associated with that, but I'm sitting here at the same time as a woman. And I love, I love when I catch dudes at towards the end of races. And I like, had to sit there and think to myself, like, do I love it because it's a guy or do I love it just because it's a person? Like, does, like, does their gender matter? And I was like, you know what? Like, I think I'm more excited because it's a guy. So mm -hmm. am I like, are they not allowed to be upset that a woman passed them, but I'm allowed to be happy that I caught them. And so I'm just trying to like, you know, think about this through that lens of, you know, is that important? Is that important in the context of running? Is it important in this and further in this conversation of how the fields are doing? Does it have to be in comparison to one another? Help. <laughs> you know, and uh, this is also something I, I just came from a cycling race. And so I think, um, uh, did this gravel bike ride in steamboat and at the dinner table, we were having it. I was, I was surrounded by more, um, elite women cyclists or just proficient or like, you know, above average women cyclists than, than, than men at the table. Um, and we were talking about all these things that 
guys had said, said to us during the race that day. And I definitely do think it, it can feel a little bit of, of us versus them of, of gender of male versus female. Um, and this is something I've experienced in the running world. Again, I'm coming at it from more of a European perspective. So I think that that's a little bit different than running on my home trails here in, in Colorado and in the United States, I get far less comments than I do. Um, you know, for instance, <clears throat> at this bike race, like a man commenting on my legs or my body, um, or like how cute I looked that day instead of how fast I was going ahead of him (laughs) or dropping him. Right. Um, and same thing with, you know, passing a trail, like when a man hears, um, that it's a woman passing her instantly, there's like a speed up. And this happened in the cycling race, um, you know, yesterday. And this also, this happens in running races. And again, this is me speaking from like more of a European, um, you know, trail race kind of environment. Um, but it can, current, I think it can be this female versus male. Cause I feel the same way when I, when I pass the, I mean, when I'm passing people at the end of, of, um, a race, of course I'm counting places. I'm like, yes, like I don't want people to pass me person. Right. But as soon as, if I see it's a person I'm passing, it's a female, I actually get more excited if it's a female, because obviously that's the race I'm running. But, um, but even if it's a guy, I'm kind of just like, all right, it's like a pat on the back. Right. I, I do really like that, but I think it kind of feels like a little bit more special. So I'm like, ha ha. Um, but I don't know if any of you have had this, but like being kind of like out sprinted at the end or like trying to, you know, being like, um, I don't know, kind of them trying not to beat you, especially if it's a guy. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I think it's really hard because you raise an interesting question about, oh, should I, if I'm getting mad about people using the word chicked or like having that as a negative connotation, then shouldn't I not care if it's a guy that I'm passing at the end? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's like, we have this game of catch up to play, right? Like as we're still so new to the sport for the men in the sport, like they're going to comment on our, our like novelty in it. And so I've gotten so many comments before races, like, Oh, are you sure you want to run that time? Do you think you can run that? Like, Oh, like, did you do X as a kid? Like people just comment on female females in sport more than, than they comment on other males. Right. And so I feel like that gives us this little bit of incentive that might be, that might come across as like a little bit of egotistical if we really want to just beat the men, but it's, it's like, we're kind of overcompensating for this, this negative connotation that we have from them in the beginning. And this is by no means all men, obviously, but just passing by some. And I think exactly. It's just to kind of tie in from what we were talking about last week as the sheer number, right? It's, I mean, if we're, if we're dealing with the, with the percentages and participation and overall entry entrance into their, into the race and therefore finishers, we will pass more men at the end anyways, just because there's more of them to begin with. For those of you who can't see this, I'm currently sliding my coffee table around so that I'm out of the sunshine. <laughs> Prince hot and sweaty right now. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. For, yeah, this is, we can overshare. I had to bike home from a pelvic floor PT appointment and got home and was just like drenched in sweat. Cause it's so like, it's actually a sun, like a summer day here, but back to Hillary's point segue, um, because there are so many more men in these races, right? Like who are we going to catch at the end of races? Right. Men. And it's, so speaking to your point as well, Hillary about, and I feel like I can share this story. It's not my story. It's my roommate's story. Um, very recent, I haven't raced recently. I haven't raced since February, 2020. So I have to live vicariously. Um, she was at a race in Utah and 
was running the marathon distance there and went out like hard, like her goal, like she wanted to break the course record. Um, and she was going to go like push herself hard. This guy had the audacity to get in front of her to try to slow her down because he said that she was going out too fast. Like, dude, run your own race. Let, like, let her do. And like, she looks younger than she is. And like, you know, is this like adorable, tiny person? And so I think they like people look at her and don't think experienced person who is capable of doing what they set out to do. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it's just inundated with these comments. And I was like, I must look haggard because I'm not receiving these comments right now. But, um, you know, just like how frustrating is that for someone, anyone, right? Like if a woman had done that too, that would also be frustrating. But this guy to be like, I don't think you know what you're doing. I'm going to, I'm going to slow you down. And that like, I mean, to our, to our conversation from our last podcast, that is not a welcoming environment that you think you're being helpful, but that is decidedly not helpful. Totally. Yeah. And on a non like gender versus gender note, I think like in my mind, I I don't want to have this feeling towards men if I'm passing them and feeling a little excited about it. I think it's really just like a potential versus potential. Like you're reaching your potential, they're reaching their potential. And I think I could pass all the men in the entire race, but if I felt like I had a poor race, then in my mind, it wouldn't quite matter as much than if I was having a phenomenal race and maybe I didn't even pass as many men. Like, I think it's more like, it's kind of fun to think of it as like this person's reaching their potential and this person's reaching their potential and, and then try to get rid of the gender. Uh, Although that might be quite hard. I, I really like that potential like versus potential and this idea. Cause I mean, some of my favorite races are not the races that I've, I've won. They're races where I feel like I actually got everything out of myself, that I put it all out there and like performed the best I absolutely could on that day. And it wasn't the win. And I think that that is, you know, that's a cool thing to recognize that, um, place and time at the end of the day, don't ever tell the full story of any of these races. A lot of stuff goes on out there and they can be, you know, these races are very, very satisfying outside of that. So I think I like the potential against potential or versus yeah. potential. Yeah. And just kind of like a tangent off of that, like have either of you ever had one of your best races be one you finished the most poorly at, like one of the most enlightening and like knowledgeable races, like, has it been actually kind of not a good time or not a good place? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, yeah. I think some of the, but I think that's a matter of perspective. I think that that's like, um, maybe that's less than a, a, a discussion about like the gender issue, but it's more, uh, it's more discussion about letting kind of lackluster performances or not reaching your A, B, C, or even D goals and allowing that to be a learning opportunity as opposed to kind of a, of a failure. And absolutely. I think that those, those races where I didn't perform as I had hoped allowed me to learn a lot about my body actually, and how long I could actually last and what you can come back from in this crazy, you know, second, third, fourth wind of ultra running and like what that can do. Um, yeah. And, but like, I think kind of like, I don't know, I'm going to cue Corinne up here for a second because I think this is like, yeah, she's, she's good at talking about all this stuff. I mean, and we've talked about this too. It's like, there's been a lot of these articles, um, you know, over the past two years that have like these headlines of, okay, women, uh, women are faster than men or they're better at longer distances. Um, and this is kind of to circle back to this Western States topic. Like, is this true? And could this account for kind of what happened at Western States? 
where we had, you know, so many women in the top 10. Yeah. And I think, so what Hillary's referring to is that there have been articles over the past couple of years that I feel like sensationalize a little bit of um, what we're seeing or like they sensationalize women's performance, right? They say, um, you know, they, the, at the, as the races get longer, women outperform men. And there's some data that we're slowly starting to see there, but it's not necessarily the overwhelming trend. And if we look at shorter distances, and there's been a ton of data collected on this, um, particularly as more and more women have run shorter distances, we're talking 5k up to the marathon. At this point, if we look at world records, um, women are typically about 10% slower than their male counterparts. And this has to do primarily with, um, what we'd think of as like physiological reasons, you know, it's, it's physical size and size is a, is a component of VO2 max. Um, it's lung capacity, it's fast twitch muscle fibers, it's all these things. And so it's not that uncommon that, that, diff, that, that it, I think that what they've decided is that that discrepancy is basically entirely like accounted for like that 10% discrepancy is entirely accounted for with those, um, biological and physiological traits, which is, which is like kind of interesting. That means like, we know really why, why there is a difference there and kind of like maybe what the limiters will be on world on world record performances in the 5k to the marathon. Um, from that regard, both can get faster, but there seems to be about a 10% spread. However, if we get longer, all of a sudden it seems, and this is where these articles have these like sensational clickbaity titles is that women all of a sudden do maybe have, have an advantage and what could those advantages, um, be specifically. And there was a really, really great paper, um, by Nick Tiller, um, who's a phenomenal researcher that came out this past year, actually came out this spring, um, specifically diving into physiological, um, reasons why, females might have a bunch of advantages actually when it comes to long distances. And they're looking, they're taking research from, um, ultra marathons, um, on foot running from swim performances, from bike performances. Um, and they've kind of broken them up into why they might be. And they're working with a ton of really phenomenal researchers kind of looking at this and, you know, the things we mentioned about why men are faster potentially are include things like testosterone and, and muscle fiber makeup but they've actually found, and we're going to talk about a few things here. And the first one's going to be this neuromuscular fatigue and, and mental, and I guess into mental strength as well component, because that'll tie in testosterone there. And then we'll dive into some topics. Um, primarily we're going to spend a lot of our time today. I think, um, really, really playing around with hormonal differences, although not diving specifically into the menstrual cycle too deeply. We want to have actually dedicate a whole episode to that. But one of the very like first reasons why women seem to outperform men, um, is actually this thing called neuromuscular fatigue. And when we think of muscles being advantageous in men, there's actually kind of this like, oh, maybe when things get really, really long, they're not as advantageous. Um, and they've actually done research at UTMB looking at this, where they basically have them do a, an exercise post-race and they look, they look at the neuromuscular fatigue, like how well is it firing? And men have a like a higher diminished um, voluntary activation longer. And what, why they think this is, is actually because women have two things going for them there. We have more slow twitch muscle fibers than men just inherently and slow twitch muscle fibers are fatigue resistant. 
Um, and I know we're going to throw like a lot of science at you all and I hope that's okay. And you can always hit us up for like more questions, happy to dive deeper or less deep into any of these things, but, um, and interrupt me if you guys have anything that you think is really pertinent here, but men have more, um, fast twitch muscle fibers than women. And so we have more fatigue resistant muscle fibers, meaning they are, they are very, very good at contracting for a long time and doing aerobic work, which is what we do in ultra running for a very, very long time. The second component of that is that when we talk about men having bigger muscles than us, it's not necessarily that they have more muscle fibers, but each individual muscle fiber itself is larger. Like the diameter is larger and they believe that that actually makes them not as efficient because of the way the blood supply is that essentially that increase in diameter, um, makes their like, like increases a, a greater metabolic cost of work, um, which I think is really, really cool that it's like the muscles strike back, um, a little bit that we have all these slow twitch muscle fibers that are a little bit like, you know, these like more slender spindles and that that is what allows us to be more fatigue resistant over the long run. Um, the second component of that, and maybe this is where we can dive in a little bit from all of us is this kind of, we're talking about mental strength and mental, um, fatigue. It turns out that women, and they've done this in the marathon and they've done this through ultras as well, is that women seem to pace themselves a lot better. Um, and they're not exactly sure why, but I got to write this really great sentence in, um, J the second edition of Jason Coop's book that's coming out, um, this fall where I got to blame it on testosterone and say, you know, like maybe it's testosterone. Like we know that it makes you more impulsive. And so I'm just wondering if, um, I mean, maybe that's why we're catching all the men at the end of these races, but I'm wondering if any of like, if you either, like any of you have experience in, in watching this play out in races or have talked to, you know, we all, we all train with men and women have talked to your male trail running partners about this. Um, if they, if they struggle with, with the pacing aspect of races, or if they, um, have ever thought about this kind of slow twitch V fast twitch question. Yeah. So, I mean, gosh, I love hearing Corinne talk about all of this science because it's so interesting and I love going down the rabbit hole and it, it makes me, um, think about all these different either articles that I've read or books that I've read. And the one thing that's coming to mind, especially with this, um, kind of mental fatigue and this neuromuscular fatigue kind of phenomenon that we're talking about, that's going hand in hand is I think all of us have experienced this kind of almost lack of motivation. If we're running kind of, let's say a race and we reach this point where it's that first kind of thought in our head where we're starting to feel tired and we're like, Oh, should I, should I keep going? Like, is, is this okay? Like, do I have enough energy to, to do this? And I think that's your body's first cue. Um, that you're kind of running low on, on energy. Right. And I think I remember reading this in Alex Hutchinson's book, um, endure, um, that that is kind of, that's like your body's first safety mechanism of telling yourself, okay, like this is, this is starting to happen. We need to like be cognizant of this, but you really actually still have about 60% of your physical capacity left. It's just kind of a safety mechanism that your brain is telling you that, okay, you're starting to feel fatigued. But I think like, when I run and train with other women, holy shit, they're so tough. Like, so if they might be like, oh yeah, I'm on the struggle bus and then they'll 
drop me up the hill, you know, the, but then, you know, they're on a struggle bus or, you know, then, but they they still will not give up. So like, they're still feeling tired, but they know. And I know when I feel that way, I still have a lot left. I kind of have to work through it, but sometimes I, um, I think about sometimes I've run with other like training partners or like ex partners and they are not so well trained at that. And, or maybe they're not as well equipped. Maybe it's this testosterone thing or kind of the, the bigger diameter of their, you know, faster twitch muscle fibers and it being more energetically costly that when they hit that point, they actually, you know, they can't train through that as much because maybe they are actually at a lower capacity, like in energetically speaking. Um, and so it is, it is a trend that I actually have noticed running with, um, maybe I think less experienced men at the ultra distance races. Um, but it's an, it's an interesting, it's an interesting topic to discuss. And, and, and I also think that maybe it's, uh, but again, at the, at the elite level, you'd think that, you know, guys, they, they would be able to kind of know themselves at this point too. Yeah, ego egos are hard to override. And and Keely, you, your cursor was just kind of on that last bullet point. And there's some studies that kind of pertain to that. Do you know what studies I'm like alluding to very loosely? Um, I mean, there's one study by Renfrey who showed that like a slower start speed happened for women. So all the women are starting a little bit slower than the men, but actually fast or finishing at a faster speed um, in ultra marathons. So they're actually like increasing their speed over the course of the run instead of decreasing. Um, and I feel like I've definitely noticed this in races. Um, I've started off with a lot of men where you're kind of like, I don't know if you're fit enough to be running this speed. And then they kind of drop down and I've had some like friends and ex-boyfriends and people who've kind of saw that I've done something and then they go out and try to do it as well and kind of crash and burn. And, and they didn't put any training in. They didn't, they didn't do anything to, to get there. They just kind of thought like, Oh, well, a woman did it. And this is going to be a controversial take a woman did it. Therefore I can do it. And so, I mean, I think that's them overestimating their abilities a little bit um, and going in with much higher confidence than they should and attempting something that their bodies just aren't ready for. So then they're hitting that anaerobic threshold probably way too early. Um, and then therefore they're not able to like come out of that hole, right? Because they're not in a steady state. They're going above it and that's even worse. Um, and then recovering from that is going to be pretty hard. Yeah. There's this interesting psychological phenomenon that we see across the board, like outside of sports too, where, um, women, men are way more likely, and this is like a weird gender, a gender thing here. And it's probably societal, right? There's a lot of societal stuff that goes on with this as well. Um, that men are much more likely to apply for jobs that they're underqualified for than women. So when men do well, they believe that it was hard work and that's what paid off. And when they do poorly, they believe that it was bad luck. And when women do well, they believe they got lucky. And when they do poorly, they believe they were underprepared. And so I also think that when we look at these pacing studies, there's probably a degree of that as well, right? Where women only undertake tasks that they feel really ready for and they've put in the training and they've put in the work for. Whereas the, this like kind of gender norm for men to potentially jump into races that maybe they're undertrained for or that they're underprepared for because they you know, why not? They think like they can do it. And that's a, that's a great, that's also a great skill to have to just believe that you can do anything. Um, but I wonder if that plays a role in the pacing fallout between male and female athletes. Yeah, totally. And I think like to your previous point, very in the beginning of, of this topic is that 
all of this is tied to testosterone, which females just do not have the high circulating levels that men do. And instead we have much different hormones, uh, namely estrogen, progesterone that regulate throughout the months due to our menstrual cycle. And those definitely have like unique impacts on how our bodies work. And I feel like that's, that's kind of something that could be an advantage for us as well as a disadvantage. Yeah. And I think that can kind of tee us into that next point. There's other reasons why testosterone is beneficial, right? And testosterone is getting a lot of heat right now uh, when it comes to like gender identity um, in sports. And that's a whole nother topic. And I think we want to bring someone on to ultimately talk about gender identity in sport as well. Um, but testosterone has other benefits, including like hemoglobin concentration and muscle strength and muscle growth and ligament and tendon strength and growth. So there's lots of reasons why that is beneficial but obviously we have other hormones that are circulating um, and that change kind of throughout, you know, whatever our cycle might be. And it has performance benefits and maybe some performance detriments. Um, and we will kind of want to set up this next, this next bit of this conversation talking about, you know, how, how does it benefit us? Um, and one, like one of those things is that increased estrogen can result in better, the, the better utilization of fats. Um, and I know Hillary is very, very passionate about this topic. So we're going to let her jump in there. And I'm just wondering, what do we need to know about this for ultra marathon performance and maybe just general health um, of women in our sport and maybe just women in general? Um, yeah. So it is something I'm very passionate about. Um, and I think it's just because uh, I've learned a lot about myself um, it, through just kind of training for these ultra distances and kind of learning the hard way. Um, and I think, you know, testing out fad diets or, you know, like listening to things in the media or different athletes of what they're doing and realizing, okay, that maybe doesn't work for me. And then following people like Stacey Sims and really kind of getting into the science of it. And so I think I want to start just like, and then we can kind of go, go from here, but just generally, when we're, when we're talking about fat utilization and we're talking about the human body and, and the system, I mean, I, I don't, it's not so simple. It's like, okay, my body will use carbohydrates now and my body will use fat now. It's, it's a mix, you know? And so, and depending on where you are at, obviously in, for a female in her menstrual cycle, it kind of changes the percentages. And, and when we're looking at not just gender, but people, um, you know, the, the effort level or pace at which they are running or exercising, let's just say effort level, um, the percentage of fat that they're utilizing versus carbohydrates will change, right? There's, it's, it's a constant ebb and flow. It's not just one or the other. So, you know, your body is, is not a robot. Um, and so, but for women, when we're looking at a baseline, um, women actually utilize fat just kind of at, more at a baseline of just generally, um, you know, living and metabolism um, in general compared to men. And so from that, that's where I said that women are more, I think I said in the, in the last episode, women are more fat adapted kind of under baseline um, circumstances because we have a higher percentage of fat in our bodies. Like that's what maintains a healthy for us, menstrual cycle, um, you know, we have fat deposits and differently than men do. Um, and yeah, so that's kind of the baseline that I'm, that I'm talking about. Um, and then, yeah, I think we can 
Corinne, direct me of, you know, which direction we yeah, want to well, go with this. <laughs> I guess we should take it just a quick step back to, and like, what, so why, like, why is this such a, like a hot issue in our sport? Like why, why are there these terms that are bounced around all the time, like fat adapted and, mm-hmm. um, and, and the keto diet and these things that, I mean, we can all roll our eyes and, and, you know, do whatever we need to do here, but you know, why, why logically is that, are people, are, is, our, is our sport more prone to be drawn to that idea? Can we just take a step back and, and talk about that for a second? And then we can kind of talk about maybe why that's not going to work for many, for many women, particularly on the performance side of things. So when, when it comes to training and, and, and racing, especially for ultra endurance events, um, we know that carbohydrates and fats provide most of the energy, right? So if we're thinking about marathon runners like that, or, you know, um, I guess take it even to, to the extreme, like sprinters, right? That's just carbohydrates, like, or that's even glycogen store, like carbohydrates that are stored in your muscles, right? You don't need to intake any energy. Um, but as, as we increase, um, as we increase the distance and we increase kind of the time that we're spent out there, we rely more on fat to provide energy. And this is because fat is really powerful. When you're looking at metabolism and I come from a chemistry and biochemistry background, when you're looking at, looking at fat versus carbohydrates from a pure energy, energy standpoint, you can release far more energy. Um, there's far more bonds, chemical bonds to be broken and kind of utilized for energy in a fat, one fat molecule than carbohydrates. Um, you know, that I'm obviously glossing over a bunch of the details. Um, but so this is, this is why we think, okay, fat is actually really powerful. So, and it's really ironic because I think back when, you know, we're talking about these like fad diets, we're like, oh, low fat diets. You don't want to eat fat because you'll get fat. Well, that's actually not true. Um, but it's actually a really powerful, a powerful substance. If your body knows how to do it, knows how to use it. Um, but I think, what the misunderstanding there is, is that when we're talking about fat metabolism, we're talking about endogenous fat. We're talking about the fat that we already have in our bodies and everyone has it, you know, around our vital organs, you know, subcutaneous fat in our skin, like all of this, we have a lot of fat. We have a lot of fat to kind of liberate for energy needs in case of emergency when, you know, someone is trying to run hundred miles around a mountain, um, that might be considered a state of emergency. And so you might want to start using that fat. And so this idea of fat adaptation is having, it can be really sexy in the term of ultra running where we want to use fat for that extra energy that it can provide. And if we can kind of tap into that, um, basically unlock that key, that door with this like key, which is, you know, basically fat adaptation that we can kind of be more efficient at running these longer distances. But aren't humans just like, I mean, we go for long, long, slow, easy runs a lot of the time. I mean, we also have to do intensity as well, but like, so aren't why, like in my mind, like, aren't we already, don't we already know how to use fat? Like our bodies are both complex and super simple, right? Absolutely. That's what I was saying at the beginning. Like we know how to use fat, our body. It's not just like we flip a switch. We have this key is like, Oh, sweet. We're going keto today, body. And today we're only going to be using fat. Like that's not how it works. So if you know, you have a stressful day or you're actually 
thinking really hard and, you know, reading a bunch of scientific articles and you're using your brain a lot, that's actually carbohydrates. That's glucose, that's sugar. Your body uses that. You don't have to tell it to do it. And so when you're kind of hitting those crashes, maybe it's, you know, not even after you've eaten something with a high, you know, the, a lot of sugar content or, you know, high glycemic index, it's like your body is actually using up your glycogen stores, your sugar. And then then it's going into kind of a more resting state when you're kind of going on your, you know, throughout the day or doing your normal routine. Um, so yeah, I agree with you, Corinne. It's it, so when we're, when we're talking about this, this is why I, I really, on principle, I don't like this whole, these whole diet culture is because it's inaccurate. It's not how your body works. And so it, you can't really have, you can't have control over, your body and its metabolism, because it's already smarter than you. It's already doing these things perfectly. Like you don't have to, you don't have to teach it or take more control over it. It's already kind of doing these things at a baseline. And again, like I said, at the beginning, um, that's kind of, and every person is different actually. So even at this, maybe a same effort level, like I would perceive, um, you know, going on my, on my, on a long run, um, the physiology that I have, I might be using 60 or 70% fat as my energy source versus um, my male counterpart, who's maybe at the same effort level as me. If we have like the same VO2 max heart rate, all of this stuff, um, he might be at, you know, 50 or 60% utilization of fat at that same effort level. So, I mean, I kind of just threw a curveball in there um, that he was a man, but maybe let's take another woman. Her percent utilization of fat at that same effort level might be different than mine. So every body is different, although we still have the same biochemistry, the same metabolism, the same kind of machinery to, you know, digest these things that we're eating and use them. Um, yeah, but that's why I don't like it. <laughs> yeah, and I think there's lots of reasons to not like it, but I'm wondering, is there like, so either, you know, like, obviously we know women generally speaking have bet like our, our hormones allow us to utilize fat maybe better than men, but is like, what risks are we at there? Right? Like, is that seems like a very tenuous balance to put a body in. And I'm wondering kind of, you know, can we really mess that up all of a sudden if we, if we try to disrupt this, this system that's at work? Yeah. Well, I kind of just want to start this by saying that I, I think we're missing a little bit of the point behind fat adaptation and where it started. So I think it started uh, for males, correct? Um, and it was an idea, right, to elevate their level at which they could work while burning fats as their primary fuel source so they could kind of avoid this bonk from sugar. And so it was this idea where, yes, we all have this biochemical reaction going on and this balance of fats versus carbohydrates. And at some points, we're going to be utilizing fats over carbohydrates. And, and we could all walk a, a ultra marathon and utilize fats. Um, and I think that's not quite the point. I think the point is elevating the level at which we can move and the speed at which we can move and still use more fats than carbohydrates. And so I think a lot of men started this as a way to, to stop you like relying on carbohydrates as their main fuel source and elevate the, the space or the speed and effort that they could run for longer amounts of time on fats. And so I think from a, from that standpoint, it kind of makes sense. Um, but when you do translate it to women, it's not quite as black and white, right? Because we do have these two hormones that are very, very invested in fat oxidation. And so if we're trying to starve our body from carbohydrates, just to get into this fat adaptation zone, then we're going to run into other issues. And so we really have to consider like 
are our unique physiology in relation to what we're fueling our body with, because to Hillary's and Corinne's points, like we're already way better at utilizing fats than males because we have these hormones to our advantage. Um, and so I think a lot of women could get into this energy hole because they're all of a sudden just decreasing the amount of carbohydrates they're having, decreasing the amount of calories in general they're having and getting into this fasted state unnecessarily and trying to fat adapt during it. Um, and I really just think that's where the issues start coming in. Um, and there's been some papers written into trail runner mag, um, a lot of studies paraphrased by David Roche. I think Corinne, you wrote some on this as well, where women are kind of in this fasted state, whether it's within a day from going out on a really long run and not fueling before, during, or after enough to maintain that high level of calories that they need for the day, or whether it's long-term. And these all have really detrimental effects on on performance and long-term health for these females. And, and yeah, that's definitely something to consider. And, and males too, honestly, there's been, there's been research both on the performance side, but also on the health side. Um, there's this really great group, um, that like that Christy's a part of that. Um, I think her name's Ida. It might be Ida cause she's Scandinavian. He's a grad student, um, that Trent Stellingworth has been on as well. Um, they, they've worked with Louise Burke, um, who has done those, uh, speed walking studies as well. Um, and so with that stuff, I think that there's been some health implications and there's also been some performance implications. And one of the studies that came out too, was even that looked at one day of low carb diet. So 24 hours of low carb diet significantly increased, um, a marker, a bone health marker, um, negatively essentially. So it was one about bone reabsorption, um, which is not what you want. You do not want, want that. And so one day, 24 hours of, of a low carb diet elicited this response and otherwise healthy endurance athletes, which is not like we're already a population, particularly when we think about our energy, um, our energy deprivation risks that already are at, at higher increased risk for bone stress injuries. So if we add this other thing to it, that also increases our risk for bone stress injuries, I think it's a recipe for disaster. And this was men and women. Um, so there, there are some significant, um, stuff there, but then I think Hillary was trying to mention there's this Louise Burke study. She's done a bunch of studies actually with speed with um with with uh race walkers, speed walkers, um, who they've done a bunch of of you know low carb, high carb, or yeah, I guess high carb and then kind of like medium carb or kind of this flexibility idea. And they actually found that it was, you know, the people who there's a lot of there are a lot of negatives for for and I think their subjects were probably entirely men more than likely or very or like at least gender was not revealed in the study. Um, likely men did not have great performance benefits from being on this low carb diet at at high at high intensities. In part was in part because they couldn't do their high intensity workouts. And maybe this is a, a huge rabbit hole um, on on keto diets and low and low. Um, low carb diets and high fat diets. But I think, you know, to, to Keeley's point, a lot of this research, additionally to Keeley's point, a lot of this research was developed by men for men with male research subjects, which doesn't really pertain to female physiology at all, which I think is a really dangerous place for us to be giving advice from, right? Like you can't give advice when you don't know how it affects female physiology at all. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, can we drop the mic? Um, but I think, uh, absolutely. And this is, this is kind of why I'm, I get so passionate about this because I feel we, we're talking about this, that 
we need to be represented, right? It's like, it's, it's for men by men. And so if we're trying to compete at a high level and get the most out of our bodies, our physiology is different. And I know that now we have research and research studies in group groups designated to study, uh, female physiology. And, um, I'm excited for our episode because Keely, I've got a ton of questions for you when we talk about the menstrual cycle and how kind of the, the nuances. And of course it's so complicated of how, and how that works and with fueling. And we're not trying to get into a war on diet. We're just simply trying to point out the differences between men and women. And, and I think how that can be exaggerated when we're throwing endurance sports and trying to stress our body to the maximum. And you don't, you don't need, you, you can't just get by with good enough. You need to really understand it and be perfect at executing this. If you want to kind of get the most out of your body and not have it be, you know, detrimentally affected, um, in a short amount of time. Uh, yeah, totally. I mean, I think just like a personal anecdote, I used to think that in order to become a better runner, it meant like hitting this body ideal. Right. And so therefore it's like, I would go out for a long run. I wouldn't have breakfast before I would probably be running late to work afterwards. So I would have like one bar between, you know, the six hours I'm awake. And, and for the rest of that day, I was kind of a savage. Like I would feel so hungry all day, be pretty much out of my mind. And, and it was this normal state for me though. And I, I didn't realize I was in it at the time. Um, and I feel like <laughs> Corinne just noted me that coffee's not food. And, and I know that, and everyone who's listening, if you don't know already, I'm a very big coffee addict and I drink a lot of coffee a day, but I realized it's not food. And, and I think this pertains to a lot of people because I think you you grow up in a running culture. Nobody eats breakfast. It's always this thing that messes up the stomach. And, and I, I just personally find that now as I've incorporated breakfast into my morning routine, regardless of when I wake up, I just make myself have the same breakfast. I don't have those crazy feelings all day. And I am getting to levels of like happiness and fitness that I've never been to before. And I think it just kind of like adds to all of these like really compelling arguments around like fasting being very poor for female, female athletes and females just around the world. Like how Corinne mentioned a a simple period of a 24 hour period can actually increase these markers for, you know, what bone, bone reabsorption and, and that's, you know, you don't want that. And so these simple things, how, you know, just disruption of just enough fueling throughout the day can really cause just for a short amount of time, they can cause these pretty detrimental, um, if, you know, not taken care of quickly, um, this it's a simple fix. Like you just need to eat enough, not too much, but enough, um, specifically in women. Like the people who are putting out some of these articles are this, like these other research groups who I think are particularly, phenomenal. And we've got even locally here in California with people like Emily Krauss doing really amazing bone stress injury stuff in women. And, um, they're starting, they just got a bunch of funding specifically for this. So we've got, we've got a badass team of researchers all over the world, really at this point, um, collaborating to, to do this type of stuff. So we've talked about, um, you know, obviously we've, we've kind of, we know that women generally speaking from a, from a biochem, like biochemistry, um, hormonal standpoint, as long as we don't have major hormonal dysregulation, should it be able to utilize fat really well? Is there anything else about those hormones, particularly estrogen and progesterone? Um, and maybe Keely, this is a question for you that is advantageous for women when it comes to like why they might have an advantage over men as distances get longer. 
I mean, yeah, we know that estrogen is what increases their ability to utilize the fats. And so that could be something that if you're in that part of your cycle during a race, that could be in a time when you're able to utilize those fatty acids more. Um, and so, yeah, I think there's a lot to be done in that area of research, because as you guys know, there's not really been a ton and everyone's cycle is so different that there's not like a one number for what estrogen is going to be during these phases for each person. It's going to be super variable. And so I think like what I've found is that we know estrogen has these impacts and we know it, it occurs during like ovulation phase at its peak. And it also is a little bit higher during the luteal phase, which is the phase right before you get your cycle. And so I'd say like, you can just keep taking notes about your own cycle and how you're feeling during runs, perhaps what you're feeling with during runs and after runs and seeing like trends within yourself to really start to get to know like your own hormonal levels, because they're going to vary than, than, than like everyone else's. Well, Corinne, I guess I have another point. I mean, we know fasting can be bad for elite runners, but like, obviously it's also been shown to be really advantageous at combating some chronic illness as well as like decreasing body mass for some populations. So what if you're just like a novice runner who's really trying to get into like sport to decrease like body mass or just improve their overall health? Like, do you think it's really as bad for that kind of population? Yeah. So obviously our where, you know, our conversation has been very skewed towards the performance end of things, as opposed to kind of the, the all around athletes, the general population and where, you know, the, this, this, the, the menstrual dysfunction is still a real concern for everyone, but these, there is a lot of science out there and there's a, there's a huge population to back this up as well, that these, these low carb, high fat diets, putting yourself in this, this ketogenic state and to like, to be more fat adapted is actually really beneficial for combating, um, certain types of, of health conditions. And that includes both weight, like for, for obesity, for weight loss and weight management. But additionally, um, it's really, it's, it can be really, really beneficial for diabetics, particularly type two diabetics. And I don't know if you all know, um, Betsy from bend. Um, I got pulled aside by, by her at Western States, um, ahead of, she brought me an ocean roll from, from bend. And she said, I've actually never had one of these. And they were surprised that I was buying one, but I said, I was bringing it to you, um, which was very, very sweet of her, but she has type two diabetes. And she said that I, I wrote an article for I run far in 2018. So a long time ago now, it was my very first article for Iron Far, and it was called, is ultra running going to give me diabetes? In part, because I have a sweet tooth. And she actually really appreciated the article because it, it brought, she thought kind of eyes on eyes on her eyes on being a diabetic in sport. And she, she will tell you that the reason she can run and the reason why her diabetes is manageable is because she is on a, a, on a low carb, high fat ketogenic diet. And that is why she can do what she does. And she has managed her diabetes through diet and exercise, which is insane. Like that is so, so inspiring and so motivational, but that's not, that's not going to be everyone. So I think that there's two sides to this argument here. You've got the high performance side, the, and, and they're like, and maybe it's, I don't want to call them the healthy population because that, that seems very negative, right? But there's the, maybe the majority of the population that's, that we commonly see in endurance research anyway. And that just might be, and honestly, those are active college students. So they're their own population too. But this, these diets aren't gonna be good for that population. But if your aim is, is weight management um, because you're struggling with obesity um, or struggling with being, being 
you know, more significantly overweight and, or something like type two diabetes targeting it with a low carb, high fat ketogenic diet could be really, really advantageous. So we can't paint it as black and white, I guess is kind of the end, the end of that conversation. And I don't know if anyone else has any, had any experience with that. We've got plenty of friends who, who are more casual athletes who have turned to these diets and it, and it has, it really has helped them manage their weight and that kind of stuff. But I think that there's always going to be a difference between what is good for the general population for health and what is good for the health and performance of competitive endurance athletes. Absolutely. Betsy is a godsend. She is the nicest woman I've ever met. And I'm glad you got an ocean roll because those are the best pastries in Oregon. So that was amazing. Yeah. I feel very, <laughs> very, very fortunate. It was <laughs> the, one of the highlights of my Western States week. <laughs> it's so good. I think the only thing that we haven't touched on is that the article highlighted maybe some other reasons why besides those initial physiological things we listed like testosterone, um, lung size and capacity and, um, type muscle fiber and type, um, which, which accounts for things like VO2 max as to why men are men outperform women. One of the things that they said might be a detriment to women was that, and they, they are not sure why, and we're just going to kind of tag this in here was that, um, women, women report more and higher instances of GI distress in ultras. And it, and it might be, they, they theorized kind of very loosely that this might be due to the fact that women have smaller stomachs. Um, and I don't know what the validity of this claim is at all, but I think this ties more into our hormonal fluctuations conversation. And I can speak from personal experience here. Like, although I actually kind of enjoy racing on my period because my energy feels really good. If it's day one, like if I act, if I actively get my period the morning of the race or like during, during the early miles of the race, I oftentimes struggle with GI distress during a race. Like I, that, that seems to be a theme for me versus the next day or 72 hours later or something like that. And I don't know if anyone else has any, has any proof, if there's any proof in the pudding there, as far as GI distress in women being a potential performance inhibitor, shall we say. Yeah. I was running with my friend the other day and she was talking about how she always feels like she has to go to the bathroom way more during the phase right before she gets her period. And I told her that I felt the same way and she was so shocked and so stoked that I said that. And so I think like it's, it might be normal or at least like, I kind of want to put that out there that yeah, during the phase before I get my menstrual cycle, like there'll be runs where four minutes in, I feel like I'm going to pee my pants, even though I just went to the bathroom before I left. So there could be something there, but if you feel that way, you're not alone. Yeah. And I think what we're trying to say here is that everyone, you know, like the likelihood is that you put it out there. Someone else is having that same experience as you. And I think what we're going to do is that we're going to do a, I think we've mentioned this, we're going to do an entire podcast dedicated to the menstrual cycle and birth control. Um, and I think we're going to, you know, we can plug this now, but highlight the fact that everyone's menstrual cycle looks different, right? They can be 21 to 35 days long. They, everyone has different hormonal phases and different, um, you know, we can call them side effects of different hormonal phases. But I think the big take home message here is that, you know, your body is unique and it's uniquely yours. And there are gonna be things that your body does that other people's body does or doesn't do. So you're not alone, but also maybe track those trends, use your training log, write it down, see what's up, talk to your friends, talk to us, fall into our DMS. Let us know um, if you have dealt with any of this, how you feel about, you know, gender V gender or people V people or potential V potential. Um, but also, you know, how have you felt you've dealt with your menstrual cycle throughout 
throughout racing and throughout training. And I think if it's all, if it's okay with both of y'all, I think we're going to introduce our final segment of our show, which is going to be a recurring segment on our show called the society slam. And that's not because we're slamming you, our society. It's because it's like a poetry slam. And we're going to bring the tidbits that you, you all so generously gave to us over the past two weeks from our first episode, i.e. what was interesting? What did you come back to us with from the community about our last show? So, so to start us off, Keely, I'm wondering if there's any points that any of our listeners, viewers, um, dropped into your, um, inbox in the past two weeks? Um, yeah, I had one, um, where the women were kind of really appreciative that we talked about the hard rock lottery because they were unaware and that they felt that it gave them now more hope to apply. And so they were thinking that there might've been even less women applying because they didn't think there was any chance they could get in anyways. And so I didn't think about this when we were talking about this new lottery change, but I think it might also increase the number of women who apply to be in the lottery, which will then ultimately increase the number of women who get picked out of the lottery. So that's really cool. Hillary, what do you got for us? Well, I received a lot of um, DMs, uh, some requests, some, you know, um, future topics. And so I think I'll just read one of them, because it's kind of related to one of these topics that we're going to be talking about, which is the menstrual cycle and, um, you know, and for females and how that affects kind of training and, uh, and everything in between. Um, and so had this woman message me and she said, I would love to hear a deep dive into postmenopause and how that affects a female running body. I'm a 50 postmenopausal runner, and there is so little information or even a conversation about this topic. And so she says, there's plenty of information on how menstruation and even premenopause or perimenopause, not enough discussion or information about postmenopause. And I think this is really interesting because I always see a lot of men of all ages out there running ultras. And we hear, I've heard this phrase and it's not supposed to offend anyone, but throwing around like the old man strength. Right. And so, uh, I would like to bring that topic to, you know, women of all ages. Yeah. And I, so if you are a postmenopausal woman, hit us up. Let us know. Yeah. Let us know if there's any there, if there's any good information out there that you've personally found on this topic. I think it's really, really important. And um, we'd love to deep dive into it um, on one of our upcoming shows. And then what, and one of the things that I thought was really interesting and this kind of tying into the both the European and the, the North American race scene was that um, I got a lot of comments from people about the fact that we we highlighted a lot of big races, kind of big, we can call them premier races, Western States, Hard Rock, UTMB, um, these races that a lot of people go to. It's probably tracks well with like things like Lavaredo as well. Um, but if we look to smaller races, so more community-based races, that the split male-female becomes closer to 50-50. It's less of the 9%, 10%, 20% that you see at these big um, prestigious races that people are working for years to get into, which I think is interesting. You know, what talk about accessibility there, right? One is much more accessible than the other. Um, And additionally, and that is backed up, I guess, by science with this idea, um, the data that they've pulled from races that are 50K and below, um, those races also... Um, have more female participation than males. And I believe I had a commenter from Australia too, who also said that this was that tracked in Australia as well, that they were closer to 50-50 in a lot of the community-oriented races as well. So I thought that was really cool to hear that um, it was not so desperately um, skewed one way over the other 
um, at all levels of sport, which I think is really promising because it's like local government, right? You got to act locally, um, and try to think, think globally. Um, so that was really, really cool to hear. That is awesome. Yeah. So do you think like in general, what do we think about male versus female, uh, in the sport? I think it's a TBD. TBD. Yeah. We don't know who's going to come out on top. I think that, I think that one of the things that we didn't mention is that as more people get into the sport, things will continue to change. Um, but I challenge any, any female, any male to any race. I'm excited either way. Any person, I challenge any person to any race. I take that back. I just cha- challenge potential. I'm challenging say, potential. Be potential. <laughs> any potential, challenge it. <laughs> okay. Um, we want to thank you all for listening to this edition of Trail Society. And we cannot wait to talk to you again soon. So slide into our DMs, hit us up. We're excited to continue this conversation down the trail. Yes. And we will be cheering Hillary on at UTMB in five days. Oh yeah. Can't (laughs) wait. Yeah. Thanks everyone. And thanks so much for all the comments. Seriously message us. We want to involve you in these conversations. Thank you so much.